Thank you for joining us for this Sunday School session on the I Am Statements of Jesus. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. So we've gone through the seven of those, plus a couple others, and we're in, we're going backwards sort of in time, where we're doing John 8, where there's this very, very acute interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees on the topic of who he is. And he'll punctuate it at the final verse to which they take up stone. So what we're seeing now is this drumbeat. It's kind of like bolero. It picks up in pace as it goes, and when it gets to the end of Eugene's one next time, He's just going to come out, drop the bomb, and say, I am, and there is no escaping the meaning of it. You can, we'll see today that there's some wiggle room here and there, and people try to wiggle around, but um, there's no wiggle room on uh, John eight fifty-eight. All right, so this is the unqualified I am statements, and I'll do one today, and Eugene will take the next one. Um, but our passage for, day, for today is this one. It's John uh, eight twenty one through 30. Somebody want to read that? Then he said again to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and will die in your sin, where I am going. You cannot come. <clears throat> so the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Then they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I even been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to say and to judge regarding you. But he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I say to the world. They did not realize that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own, but I say these things as the Father instructed me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he said these things, many came to believe in him. There's a big glaring difference on this page from what I usually do, and it's NASB on the top. And the reason for that, and I, and I love NLT, it's my favorite to read, but as I've said to you before, read it in multiple um, translations and you'll find out right away what some of the differences are. When we get to this issue of unqualified I am statements, the NASB, which is usually the closest to the original Greek, does not vary and add stuff to the text. Now we'll see that as we go, but the I am statements, people massage them different ways, and there's a technical point in here we'll get to as to why they do that, but um, this passage is the beginning of the end of the cordial relationship that Jesus has kind of had in public. If you want to set the, the context of what's going on here, remember we talked about the Feast of the Booths, before, it, um, before Jesus came down to the Feast of the Booths, his brothers said to him, why don't you go down and show yourself to everybody? If you want to be famous, go there. And the reason they were saying that is this is one of the three pilgrimage um, festivals where every 
um, every male that was born a Jew had to attend these three, and this is one of them. So they brought their families, everybody came, they camped in these little huts or booths that they, they built that were to represent the children wandering in the wilderness. So there were thousands of people there. Jesus did not go at the start of it. He came um, midway towards the end. So he gets there towards the end, and they have one ceremony called the water festival, uh, the water ceremony, and they do it every day. And so every morning when they would get there, the priest would walk down to the pool of Siloam, he'd get the water, he'd bring it back, he'd pour it in the basin. And that was representative of two things. One, um, Moses uh, hitting the rock and the, the water being supplied by God for them, for their sustenance and to, to keep them. And then also it, he refers to himself as the, um, as the giver of living water. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit that's to come. So it's a, it's a bridge into the new covenant as he says <coughs> this. So as he stands up, they're already like, whoa, where'd he come from? Because they didn't see him come in. You know, in our day and age, there's entourages and lights and all that kind of stuff. And when someone makes an entrance, they make an entrance. But in those days, I mean, frankly, look, they're all wearing kind of drab clothes. They, there wasn't a lot of stuff going on as far as looking different unless you were a wealthy Pharisee um, or Sadducee. So he mixed in with the crowd and then he stands up. He's like, you guys see this water thing? Come to me if you're thirsty. I'll give you living water. Time marks in this become a little difficult. We're trying to set the context. The, um, the uh, pericope adultery, the woman caught in adultery scene, is where we get our time reference for everything that happens after Jesus has said, um, I'm sorry, right before Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And basically he says from the night before, he went away to the Mount of Olives, and we don't know whether he stayed in a house or um, one of these booths, but he came back the next morning to the temple, and it's in the, in the morning, and he starts there, and people gather around him, he starts teaching. So we know that he came back at the end of the, the feast. Now, Eugene and I have been talking about this. The feast has normally seven days, but they add an eighth day to it. So he's either here on the eighth day, which they're considering part of the, the feast still, or he's there on the ninth. Hard to tell. But uh, the long and the short of it is he shows back up and he starts teaching. And there are these giant candelabras that they lit up the city with that were representative of the the pillar of fire in the wilderness and the Shekinah glory of God at the temple, which was no longer there. So they're having this big ceremony. They light these things. They bring them down every morning. It's high likelihood if this is the last day of the feast, the sun's come up, they're turning off the oil lamps. And as they're turning them off, he says, I'm the light of the world. Just declaring, follow me. I'm the Shekinah glory of God. I've returned and I'm here permanently. All right, so that's what we have for the, the setting and the time. In our passage, it says, uh, then he said to them again. And the Net Bible had this little note here said, it indicates there's a break in the sequence of events, but it's not clear how long. This marker in time we think is associated with right after the festival of the booths. The next marker in time that we have in uh, the book of John is John 10:22, where he, he talks about the Feast of Dedication. So that's about a two-month gap there. So we know that this happened somewhere in there. We kind of feel like, because it says he said to them again, that it's attached to the previous one. But it's, it's a long putt to say for sure that that's, that's for sure. 
right? There's some interesting things that, that I didn't catch in my first reading. One of them hit me right away is Lenski wrote, when you see this, I am going away, Jesus knows what's happening. He knows they're going to collect him, try him, beat him, and crucify him. And yet he says of his own volition, I am going away. I mean, read into that. Seriously, read into that. He's controlling this. He's telling them this is what's going to happen. They haven't formed those ideas fully in their heads yet. They don't know how they're going to do this, but he knows it's going to happen. He's willingly going to go irrespective of what their plots or their plans are, which says a whole lot about the sovereignty of God. God is in charge of all things, even even the evil plots of men. They're doing them willingly, and he's using them for his glory. It's so hard to fathom, because in this case, it doesn't say he caused them to do it. They're, they're going to do what they're going to do, but he has ordered all the events to lead to the crucifixion. No ifs, ands, or buts. I thought that was a, a really neat one to start with. You will look for me. There's a lot of controversy on this one. Some people think that when he goes, they're going to look for him like, Where, where'd you go? Where'd you go? And some think, well, maybe when he rises from the dead, they'll be looking for his body. Like, where did they take his body? It seems like the best answer I found on this is that people are saying, despite the fact that he truly showed himself to be the Messiah by word and deed and miracles, the Jews are going to ignorantly go on looking for the Messiah to come. And, and if you've talked to a Jew, an observant Jew, you're going to find that they will say, yeah, we're waiting for the Messiah. They're still waiting for the Messiah. And Jesus is standing in front of them and saying, you're going to look for me, the Messiah. But you're going to die in your sins. Now, this sounds like a threat, but it's not a threat. He's, he's saying, if you keep looking for the Messiah, after the Messiah is right here in front of you, there is no hope for you. You will die in your sins. When you face God in judgment... You're going to face me. Jesus will sit on the throne of judgment and judge these people who, who refuse to follow him, to refuse to acknowledge that he's the Messiah. Somebody want to read the little Ryle quote down at the bottom there? I'll read it. Thanks, Bill. J.C. Ryle, it is possible to see Christ too late and so to seek him in vain. This is a very important principle of Scripture. True repentance, repentance, doubt, Doubtless, is never too late, but late repentance is seldom true. There is mercy to the uttermost in Christ, but if men willingly, willingly, willfully reject Him, turn away from Him, and put off seeking Him in earnest, there is a such thing as seeking Christ in vain. That little part in the middle there, he said, "True repentance, doubtless, is never too late, but late repentance is seldom true." And I think what he's getting out there is that sometimes people get caught in their sins. I remember when Jimmy Swagger got caught in his sins and he started crying and moaning on TV. That's entirely different than the Spirit of God convicting you of your sins and coming and confessing. Late repentance, because you're afraid, foxhole, conversions, etc. It's possible, it's possible, but um, true repentance shows itself. 
it, it acknowledges its position says, I'm not right with God. I am a sinner. I can do nothing to please him. I must have Christ's righteousness. And they turn away from sin. You'll die in your sin. Uh, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus is really setting himself apart from them. And, and he has had these illusions. There'll be more of them. I don't want to steal Eugene's thunder, but he came down from heaven. He's going to return to heaven to be by the side of the Father again where he was in all eternity. These people who are refusing to acknowledge him are from the earth. They're the dust. Apart from a work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and draw us and give us faith and repentance, we're like that too. We are, we are ignorant. We're already our path is set for hell because of our rebellion I mean it's it's hard for us because we're born again and the spirit indwells us and we're reading the scriptures and we're like why didn't they get it why don't they understand people are healed like fully deformed people are made whole in front of their faces the dead are raised leprosy gone blindness healed all of it it's like we, we look at that and we're going it's, it's crazy but the blinded hearts of the average uh, human being, unless God doesn't work on them, they won't believe. They won't. They're, they're damned because of their rebellion. It's not that they, they can't. Uh, they, they won't. That's really where the emphasis should be. They won't. They will not bow before Jesus. MacArthur says, the reality of this is sobering, is a sobering truth. Um, of the sobering truth is those who reject Christ will suffer the consequences of their sin. Eternal separation from God. By refusing the light of the world, they doom themselves to eternal darkness of hell. Um, notice too that right here the singularity of the word sin. I wouldn't normally call it out, but in the next uh, passage, he's going to say sins plural. It appears that Jesus is using this moment to focus them and say, Because you refuse me. This sin of refusing me is, is going to be the final nail in your coffin that sends you off to the darkness, to the place where, where you go, but I'm not going. And you can't go where I'm going because you haven't done that. That is the sin unto death. Yeah. All right. All through John, there's, there's these reactions that people have when Jesus said something. And they quickly go to some literal or some obscure idea to avoid the reality they should be dealing with. And they say, will he kill himself? Earlier in John 7, he said something about going away, and they said, oh, is he going to go to the dispersion and go to the Jews that are dispersed all over the place? And now they're like, this is the second time he said it. They're like, well, wait a minute. You're going to kill yourself? Because we're good Jews, and we're going to heaven. And a person who kills himself will go to hell. So they're taking that thing where he said, you can't go where I'm going. They're flipping it. They're flipping it and say, oh, because you're going to kill yourself, we can't go there because we're going to heaven. That, that's what they're saying. And he says, you're from below. I'm from above. Just to settle it. He's, he's not letting that one go. Jesus, this is one of the most combatic, um, combative uh, interactions that is in all of scripture. John 8, if you read it, Sometimes you just have to stop and go, whoa, man. 
they're arguing that he's going to go down to the depths of Sheol, to the place that's <clears throat> confined for those who kill themselves. Jewish tradition said that there was a special place in hell for those that committed suicide. So they're, they're flipping it and saying, you're going down there. <laughs> and look what he does. You're from below. You're thinking I'm going down there, but you're from below. And, and you could read into that, you're from hell, but I'm from heaven. I mean, there, there's, not, there's not too much difference between what he's saying. You're of this world, I am not of this world. We see, all of us see that little um, not of this world sticker. It confused me at first because I use a cross for the, the T, but... Um, that is so amazing a statement for Jesus to say because he's here as a man. He is fully man, and yet he's fully God, but his origin is not here. <laughs> well, this, this kind of stuff just fueled the Gnostic. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> That's true. You want to explain that a little? Well, the Gnostics, it's going to be in our first John lesson, but... The Gnostics came from the Docetists, and the, Dos uh, the Docetists believed that Christ was only divine, never was actually a man, and that the, all that his bodily appearance was was an illusion. Uh, in fact, the word, uh, the word of Do Doceti in, in the Greek means seems like, to seem. And so uh, that grew into a major heresy that was condemned at the Council of uh, Nicaea in 325. But they began to believe that Christ was only divine. His time on earth was a divine apparition, uh, and there was no human side to him at all. And that had to be put down uh, severely. <laughs> if, if he had just stopped here, you might have had room, some wiggle room for that kind of stuff. Um, but later Jesus is going to say, you're going to know I am when you lift me up on the cross. Mm -hmm. So he'll talk about his physical body shortly. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I talked about this. They, they thought they were mocking him and saying he's going to kill himself. Um, I said all those things. I have a lot of references from Hendrickson, Carson in here, and I really like a lot of what they said. But Carson, uh, somebody want to read that Carson quote right there? This is almost certainly an ironic prophecy of Jesus' death akin to John 11:49-50. His opponents are wrong to think he will achieve his departure by killing himself. Unwittingly, they are nevertheless profoundly right, for he goes away by voluntarily laying down his life, not in suicide, but in submission to the Father's will, a violent death meted out by his enemies. So the irony, uh, I thought that was, was fascinating that D.A. Carson brought that out. They're saying you're going to go away by, by your own hand, killing yourself. He is going to go away dying, but it's going to be by their hand, but it was by the will of the Father. And it was very specifically to be the, be the substitute. Um, someone, uh, speaking of that from below and above, someone will read that John 3.18 passage. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for, their, for fear of their sins will be exposed. But those who do 
what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. It's a, it's a marked thing to notice their reaction. They try to turn the tables on him because they think they're righteous. They assume that they're Jews and they're righteous. And you see this, you see this today in all sorts of permeations of Christianity where people assume that because they were born into a church or their parents were Christians or they went to um, Sunday school their whole life that, and they know some scripture that they're righteous. But you're not righteous unless you've closed with Christ, unless you've been born again, unless you've trusted in him, repented of your sin and are following him. Then you have that appointed righteous righteousness. They're starting from the position that they're saying we are righteous Jews. All right. This one I thought was a fascinating one. In the midst of their mockery, in the midst of their the horror of them rejecting him, he says again, um, you're going to die in your sins unless you believe. And I don't remember who it was exactly who brought this up. I, I was reading from um, Precept Austin, this web page that collects a bunch of commentaries. And somebody wrote on there, and I couldn't find out who it was originally. This is an escape hatch. Like a submarine, you don't want to be in a submarine that's going down and have no way to get out. Right? So they have escape hatches. Some of them are tubes for missiles, etc. But... If the thing was going down, the crew knows they could go to this place, open this hatch, and swim out. Jesus is telling them, death awaits you, but there's an escape hatch. It's a wonderful thing to say, even these people who, who he knew were going to be part of the group that were hanging him on the cross. Until they die and stand before the Lord, they're in the day of grace. This day before judgment is a day of grace. Christ extends the offer and says, anyone who will come, despite the horror of what they're doing and saying, this unless is a word of grace. Uh, Lenski says some good things here. Um, the sins of these men will destroy them by robbing them of life eternal only if they refuse to believe in Jesus. The if clause is the way it's phrased in the KGB is pure gospel. I love that. Extending its blessed invitation anew. Yet it is again combined with the warning about dying in sins. This note of warning with its terrifying threat persists because the Jews had chosen unbelief. Yet the if opens the door of life in the wall of sin. Ah. Unless what? Unless you believe that I am. And then the he is in there and it's italicized. We'll get to that in a minute. You'll die in your sins. We're going to open up this, this big box of what does he mean by am in a, in a second there. But would somebody read the, the green part? starts with uh, Jesus explained. Jesus explained the divine escape clause is to believe that he is the great I am. Implicit is the belief that we are sinners in need of, of him as Savior and that we received slash believe we would be he would be our substitute for the taste of death in our place giving us eternal life there's clearly a warning unless we believe the door to grace may be shut no man knows when God deems it is time to shut that door to an individual's life it behooves these to 
walk through the store labeled unless the consequence to fail to believe is to receive the wages of sin, which is death forever. It, it, this, this really the word unless here in a, in a great sense. I love these kind of places where you can find the whole gospel in a, world, in a word. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a bleak situation. You come into this world and everybody's dead and hating God and rebelling. And there's a wall around them. It's a solid wall. They can't get out of that. And God burrows a hole through that. And he calls that door grace and says, here's the escape hatch. I I note this in a bunch of places, but I think it comes out clearly in Acts 17, 26 through 27. Jim, Jim, are you able to read that one? Or is it too off angle for you? Oh. <clears throat> what is that? Is it's that a one, one? a number a, one. Is that a one? Yeah. Okay. From one man, he created all the nations throughout uh, throughout the which or the whole earth. The whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Boundaries. Yeah. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God saves sinners. That's his intention towards sinners is to save sinners. All right. So why is it that so many of our translations, when we come to this passage about unless you believe that I am, they add he or who I say that I am. Um, It's a little bit of a technical discussion, and I'm going to sum it up. I I read it, and I'm not sure I fully understand it, but basically um, D.A. Carson says that in the Septuagint, uh, in their translation, they have a couple more words that they put in there, um, ho-on. And so you see that in the Isaiah passages where... God is saying, I do this so you know that I am he, and the Hoan is is part of that. And so when people are thinking about the Bible that the Jews operated from them, most of them had the Septuagint at that time. And so they would have been reading those. So it, it seems odd that he would John would go to the Ego Ami, and Carson and I have been going back on back and forth on this. Some of the non-qualified ones earlier on, he didn't think should be read as I am in the sense of Exodus 3. But he's getting to the point here now where he's like, there's not a lot of wiggle room left, guys. <laughs> and and he there's one more in this passage in verse 28, and he says there's no wiggle room there. What he is saying, though, is in, in concern with what, what I was talking about earlier, about that kind of progressive drumbeat, there is a sense in which they could have interpreted this and said, I am who I say that I am, or I am he, and seen that as potentially a reference to the prophet that was coming, and not necessarily God himself. So there's, there's some there's a rationale. They don't pick up stones at this point, and Carson is arguing, is they think that, that Ho'on has gotten into the interpretation here. <clears throat> but at the bottom... Uh, I think Carson put it really well. He said, for others to apply this title to themselves was blasphemous, an invitation to face the wrath of God. For Jesus to apply such word to himself is tantamount to a claim of deity. Once it's clear that the other potential meanings of ego and me are contextually impossible. So what that means is 
you're looking at the context and you're trying to decide, do I put other words in there because the context begs for it? Some people said um, that this context does beg for it, that, that he's said, I am the light of the world, I am these things, and he's referring back to those, or um, referring back to other things he said in the conversation. I think that that errs in the sense that we know the end of this conversation. We know where it's going, and it's undeniable by verse 58. I think verse 28 is pretty clear, too. So Carson is, is starting to lean towards this. This is a reference to ego and me, but you, you still have wiggle room, and you could still have that um, interpretation in your Bible. All right, so what is it that he's saying people have to believe or they'll die? Right? So he, he says there's an escape hatch, a door of grace. If you believe, you escape. What is it you have to believe? So there's kind of a spectrum, right? Um, Judy and I were talking about this yesterday. There's a lot of theological details that it took us a lot of time to grasp. And for me, this question gets to, could you expect a new believer to understand some of the details that we know now? And, and that has to be set against the context of who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Jews that are super well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. They're not ignorant people like we encounter on the streets who know no, nothing about Christianity or minimal. So I think the people that are on the, the left side of this spectrum who don't want to go all the way and say they have to believe Jesus was God, I, I don't think that's borne out by the context. Uh, Hendrickson skirts right on the edge. Um, Jim Deming, can you read that one, that, that Hendrickson one there? Meaning is that I am all that I claim to be, the one sent by the Father, the one who is from above, the Son of Man, the only begotten Son of God, equal with God, the one who has life in himself, the very essence of the scriptures, the bread of life, the light of the world, etc. The fact that rejection of the Son, failure to believe in him and to obey him, results in everlasting death is expressed not only here in John 8.24, but also in John 3.36. So you notice he didn't come out there and say, you have to believe that Jesus is God. <laughs> I mean, he's like right on the edge of all those things that you add them up and it's like, uh, no, I think he's God. You put the equal sign in there. Right? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Johnny Mack, who... Uh, fair criticism is not a language expert. It goes right for the jugular. He just says, this is the tetragrammatron. This is Jesus applying the name Yahweh to himself. And he says that the Jews got it, and basically they started getting pretty intense at this moment when Jesus is saying this. They're, they're starting to huff and puff, and they're ready to blow his house down. Um, some people take the name Yahweh and they really lightly treat it as if it's a nothing thing to say. The JWs do that, to call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. They're, they're really lightly taking the name of God. At this moment in time when Jesus said this, people didn't say the name of God. They would go out of their way not to say it. Like when we were in 
the uh, Sermon on the Mount, we noted that Matthew would not say the kingdom of God. He would say the kingdom of heaven to avoid saying the word God. So when Jesus comes out here and he says this, and if you went through eight, and I've been highlighting the I am's through it, he's saying I am over and over and over and over again. In this, it's like boom, boom, boom. And then he'll punctuate it with one like this where he says, unless you believe that I am. And it's like, whoa. <coughs> Johnny Mack says, to be a Christian, one must believe the full biblical revelation of, of Jesus. Um, Jen, would you read the stuff he lists there? He is the... He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He entered space and time as God incarnate. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. His death on a cross is the only sufficient substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all who would ever believe in him. He rose from the dead and ascended to the Father in heaven. Now intercedes for his own redeemed people, and he will one day return in glory. To reject those truths about him is to, quote, be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, 2 Corinthians 1 3, to worship another Jesus, verse 4, to be cursed by God, Galatians 1 8 9, and ultimately to Okay. Do new believers know and believe all of that? It's kind of a trick question because in one sense, yes. They know God is God. They know Jesus was sent to to die in their place and they deserve to die for their sins. I'm talking about believers now, not unbelievers. Everybody who's been born again, um, they know these things. Their only hope to be right with God is Jesus. They know those things. So in a nutshell, what I just said is spelled out, it's fleshed out by what MacArthur said here. And I would argue that as you present young new believers with these things, they will gladly embrace them. When they see them in scripture, they'll say, oh, Jesus was my substitute? I didn't quite understand what that meant. And he substituted himself and fulfilled the law and took the penalty of my sins. When you spell that out to them, a new believer, they're like, wow, that's, this is gold. I, I hit it. I hit pay dirt. I mean, you give them the details and it just puffs. They, they get so excited because of what God did. So I'd say that these people, with the knowledge they had, they should have been able to see that this was the Lamb of God. This was the Son of Man. This was the, the Good Shepherd. This was the light of the world. All of those things, they should have seen those things. They should have known the details. If anybody had ever had it all laid out before them, it was the Jews. New believers, when they're faced with these things, I believe they'll embrace them, as we did, right? And as we were corrected for the foolish things we believed and brought to see the truth, we were like, that's it. The scripture says it. God says it. Jesus says it. Who am I to deny it? Well, you're filling in the points of the outline. Yeah. You're fleshing out the outline. Exactly. Yeah. It's like when you're doing a briefing and you have bullet points. There's sub-bullets. And when you're trying to do the top-level thing, the first thing you do is you erase the, 
the sub bullets and just give the main bullets. Mm -hmm. That's what the unbelievers get at first is the big bullets and then it gets fleshed out over time. Now, we're in a day and age where too many churches stay with just the top bullets and never flesh the things out <laughs> and it causes all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. If churches were faithful to just preach what God said in his word and don't worry if people get ticked off or not, they would get all this stuff from the beginning. And wouldn't that be better to start off your Christian walk with a full spate of understanding? But if people deny those things, if they, if they come and they say, nah, Jesus wasn't actually God incarnate. He didn't live a sinful life. Think about it. If you negate those things, you don't get in. You're, you're talking about heresy then. You're talking about denying what God did. The negative of all, all those is the the thing that, that you're going to die in your sins for. All right. Almost done. So they ask the obvious question, well, who are you? <laughs> and and you you got to put yourself in their place, and it's easy for us as um, New Testament, New Covenant believers filled with the Holy Spirit to look back at this and go, Duh! He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. What's wrong with you people? They were steeped in this time where um, all sorts of things had gotten confusing. There were all these rules that the Jews had adopted that were the commentaries of their wise guys. And they were doing things that weren't biblical because they put their traditions on par with Scripture. They, they, it was completely clouded as to what was supposed to actually be happening. And they thought they were righteous because they were Jews. Go ahead, Eugene. They all have preconceived notions. And they were looking for a certain kind of Messiah. And Jesus wasn't that Messiah yeah, that they right. were looking for. Even though he came at the right time and he did all the right things that Scripture said that he was going to do. Their preconceived notions prevented them from seeing the truth that was standing right before them. And we all have blind spots just like that. Sometimes people say, well, okay, why doesn't Jesus come down and prove this to me too? And I think about these things and I think, in one sense, I thank God I wasn't there because I don't, I fear that I would have been one of them spitting on Jesus and hurling insults at him. I'm so glad I didn't even have the opportunity to sin like that or to sin like these people are. And because they're doing this now doesn't mean that they didn't come to Christ later. When you hear about the people that came to Christ um, before Pentecost and during Pentecost, it says there were many Pharisees and scribes and priests who believed in him. So this isn't the end, and until someone closes their eyes in death, it's not the end for them, and it's not the end until Christ comes again. He has many things to say to them, and I'm not going to steal Eugene's thunder because this is the beginning of this discussion of the many things. Um, He's going to go into that in depth. They ask the question, who are you? And it's, it's a deflecting question. Um, they really don't want to know. Because if they really believe what he was saying, it points at their sin. Well, and they think they know. Yeah. They, they think <laughs> yeah. they know. Yeah. We're the ones that teach you, not you teaching us. Buddy. This fellow, Stephen Cole, who I don't know, but I got this quote from him. He said, um, they're effectively saying, and some commentators have said it, who do you think you are telling us we're going to die in our sins? He was a pastor in Crestline for a long time. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so 
So it's not who are you? Or it's not who are you. Right. It's rather who are you? Yeah. Right? It's it's a mocking tone. Yeah. Which is interesting. The mocking tone leads into the next problematic area of this. If they are really saying, Who do you think you are? then this next question, and I'm not gonna get into this too deep, but it's a really hard passage to interpret, and I wish Eugene had had this one because he could walk us through this in the Greek. But some people interpreted Jesus' response where he says, what I've been saying to you from the beginning, some say that it could be interpreted as, why do I even bother talking to you people? It's like they get derisive with him and he has had it with them. I'm, I'm not going to go there with this, but um, there's three choices. The first one, I think, is the one that, that I choose. And by the way, Ryle, who's the one quoting this, he chose this one. He says it should be, be viewed as, I am the same person that I told you I was from the very first, the beginning of my ministry. Some people see this as him saying, let me begin a conversation now to tell you who I am. Like it's an introduction. That's B. Like he's introducing the fact that he's going to tell him now who he is. And the last one is, I think, a grope where people are taking, you know, the revelation passages where Jesus says, I'm the beginning and the end. And when he says beginning here, the alpha, they're like forcing that in there to, to have him be say, being saying, I am the beginning and the end, which John didn't do until the revelation vision. So it, that one just doesn't seem to fit. But you can see the people who stacked up there. It's really up to you which one you hold to. Again, me and Ryle, we're on A. <laughs> All right. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. This is where D.A. Carson comes along and says, there's not a lot of wiggle room left here. <laughs> um, I'll read this one. The exaltation of Jesus means, uh, by the means of the cross, is also the exaltation of Jesus on the cross. And what an upside down thing to think the one who dies on the cross is the one who's exalted. I mean, it's the ultimate upside downness of the gospel. People would have thought the king would ride in and and be on a steed and take over the armies and wear a crown and sit on the throne and the king comes in and he's crucified but the crucifix crucifixion is the means by white by which he's exalted in eternity past the godhead said we're going to save rebellious sinners and jesus put his hand up and said i will go for them and here it is that intersection in time where he actually does it he is exalted because he's fulfilling all the promises that God made to save sinners by grace. But he's taking the brunt of it on himself. The, the path to get that exaltation was a horrific, painful path of death. But it revealed who he was. I mean, we look now at like Isaiah 53 and we read that and we're like, that is so Jesus. I completely see Jesus taking our sins upon himself for us. And Jesus here does it. He's telling them, when you see that, all the pieces should come together in your head. But he also says, by your hand, 
you're going to lift me up. Now, did they understand what that meant? Hard to say. He clearly understood it. Um, but they will understand it. Um, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. It's an interesting connection he makes here at the end here. Even though he's declaring himself to be equal with God, he keeps the relationship with the Father. The Father and the Son have a relationship. And he says, I do nothing of my own. This thing that he's about to do isn't something he solo did, decided to do, or was, you know, plan B. This was the Godhead's plan all along. And what he's doing, despite the fact that men didn't get it, is exactly what the Godhead had planned. The one who sent him is with him. He's not left him alone. And they're going to assume, remember what was said to him when he was on the cross. You raised other men from the dead. You healed them. Come down from the cross. If God's really on your side, come on down and show us. And he's telling them they're going to hang him on a cross. And they're going to think that God has turned away from him. And he's saying, no, that's, that's not it. This is... This is the plan of God the Father. Yes, it's going to confuse you. If they come to know Jesus at all, they'll most certainly have to know him because of the cross. And, and I think the fruit after Pentecost that you see shows that, that the Spirit comes and massively has a giant puzzle, and he's putting all the thousands and thousands of pieces together and turning the lights on on all these different people, and they're like, oh, I see the picture. I get it. God has done what he said. The puzzle's finished. There are no more parts. I see the picture. And the good news is many came to believe in him. Now, there's this punctuation when Eugene comes up next week. It's going get, to get more vicious. But at this moment, when Jesus says that about himself being lifted up and that the Father's with him, this is the plan all along. People believed. So did they understand fully that he was talking about the cross? I don't know, but I think some did. Eugene? Um, when Jesus was standing before Caiaphas, um, said they were questioning him about who he is. And he says, you know, tell, you know, tell us who you are. And he says, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, or from now on, in the Greek, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, when they lifted him up and killed him, they freed him up to ascend to heaven. And that's what he's telling them. You will understand. You will see it. You will know. It's really humbling to, to stand and, and think about this moment in time. I, I didn't look into it, but I feel like if John were a chiastic book, this is the center of it, and it's it's like the peak, saying Jesus has come to die for his people, and he's going to do it, and the people, many of the people he's dying for don't get it, but he's going to do it anyway, and those for whom he's dying will come to him. Uh, the Father will bring them all, the Spirit will go collect the whole set, and that's what he's done with us. We, we're being... We're part of that set that's being collected. So, lest we uh, take, uh, lest we get downcast, remember, many came to believe in him.
Thank you for joining us for this Sunday School session on the I Am Statements of Jesus. For more information, visit our website at www.gracepropidencechurch.org.